Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? That's not the new opening line to this podcast. That's just the way that I chose to open this one. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to Sondheim on Adderall. Big day here at Sondheim on Adderall. Um, dealing with the same cold we were dealing with last week. See how that plays out. See if I ever get over this cold. See if Los Angeles ever gets over this rainy, depressing vibe so that maybe my health can improve. Um, before we get into today's episode, it's a meaty one. Haha, <laughs> no pun intended. Am I right? I want to um, talk about a couple of things from last episode that I forgot to mention. The Little Night Music episode. Uh... This is, there's no way to get into this seamlessly, so I'll just say, um, if you tuned in to hear about Sweeney Todd and you don't give a flying fuck about a little night music, then skip ahead 45 seconds because this will mean nothing to you and you won't care. Uh, the character of Charlotte in the little night music, like I said, uh, she's a, uh, the best character in the show. She's a joy. But there's a plot point in the second act that I can't believe I didn't talk about because it... Upon rewatching it, it blew my mind. So Charlotte's plan when she gets to the country and she says to Anne, this is how we're going to um, fuck this woman over, this Desiree Armfelt, who has uh, uh, cuckolded us. Do you use the word cuckolded when it's the other gender? Anyway, th this woman that's slept with our husbands. We, I, Charlotte, will pretend I will seduce your husband, Frederick, and that'll make her feel so bad. What an insulting fucking plan to say to your friend, Ann Eggerman. What are you thinking, Charlotte? First of all, stupid idea. Second of all, if that was your plan, why tell Ann Eggerman about it? Anyway, that's all. Uh, I just had to get it out there. I thought that was strange, and it didn't strike me as strange uh, when I watched the show as a child. Also, um, a lot of people have been asking, nobody's been asking, uh, why there were those factory whistle sounds uh, at a certain point in the episode. They sounded a little something like this. Uh, it's because I accidentally used the first and last name of a living, breathing human being that uh, I've been acquainted with. And I uh, realized I've been cagey and uh, speaking in vague terms about people. And I wasn't, sh it, it didn't seem fair Nobody's listening to this fucking thing, but it just didn't seem fair to call that person out by their full name. Uh, so I bleeped it. Um, and that, by the way, uh, is the new bleep sound here at Sondheim on Adderall. Anytime I uh, run my mouth inappropriately and it needs to be bleeped out. Uh, let's try it right now. I'm going to say the C word and I'm going to use that bleep sound. So get ready. I know it's jarring. You fucking cunt. So you see how that works? Anyway, today we're here to talk about a masterpiece called Sweeney Todd. A lot of people's favorite Sondheim musical and for good reason. It's really nothing like anything he's ever written before, really. It's really like nothing in the Broadway musical canon. Way before it's time. It's a musical thriller. That had never been done before, folks. And I'm going to tell you something. It has never been done since with the level of quality 
that this thing does it with, if that was a sentence. So the, the musical Sweeney Todd is genuinely scary, okay? I don't know of any other musical that is genuinely scary. If you ask me. There, there have been attempts. There have been shows that have come close. Let's talk about it. We got Little Shop of Horrors. Okay, that one's cute for the most part. There's murders and blood in it. But I would say the only time that a little shop actually gets scary is uh, that song Supper Time. The musical, the little musical riff that plays while Seymour is uh, one uh, thinking of whether he should kill Mr. Mushnick and the plant is telling him he should do it. Um, another attempt was Jekyll and Hyde. Now listen, I uh, was in Jekyll and Hyde in the title roles in 2012. Um, Jekyll and Hyde is terrible. Terrible lyrics. Corny as fuck. It was a valuable formative life experience to be in it. It's not a good show. And Phantom of the Opera is the most overrated garbage ever. And it's not scary. And it's ponderous and boring. And the only reason people like it is because the songs are fucking catchy. Or hummable. You want to call it that? Don't like Phantom of the Opera. Um, anyway, th this is not about that. Sweeney Todd. It's cinematic. Stephen Sondheim loves movies. Has always loved movies since childhood. When he was a kid, he didn't like movie musicals. And we're talking about the 30s and 40s, right? Uh, the, the heyday of the movie musicals. Uh, he, the exception is The Wizard of Oz. He liked The Wizard of Oz, but he found movie musicals boring, which is interesting to me. Uh, the movies that he liked were suspense and melodrama. And the reason he liked it, because the music played such an important role in them. So um, at the end of the day, I think he defines Sweeney Todd as... Um, a movie done on stage, a horror movie done on stage. And that is that is what it is. And we're going to talk more about that in detail. I feel that I'm probably going to gush quite a bit about Sweeney Todd. I mean, I like all of these shows. Every one I've talked about so far, I like them all. There's like two Sondheim shows I can't hang with. And uh, I'm going to talk about those last. Even a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, which, uh, you know, as I said what I said about it, I, I, I have a fondness for it. Sweeney Todd is God-tier Sondheim, peak Sondheim, real good. Let's get into it. So, um, you know, it was the first of its time and the only of its kind to be a truly scary musical thriller. I think that I would argue that maybe, even though it wasn't like a box office smash, I think it spawned a lot of shit. Um, not even quote-unquote horrors or thrillers, but... Um, Sort of the long, ponderous, endless musical that somebody writes as though it's a masterpiece. Yes, I'm talking about Les Miserables. And uh, the aforementioned Jekyll and Hyde, The Secret Garden. Uh, the idea that, uh, yeah, a musical should be this really long thing that is very serious and has uh, costumes and uh, is uh, Oscar Beatty. What? No, that's not... Okay, um, so it's interesting. I, I, I'm not like a horror film buff. I like four or five horror films. When I was growing up, I, ha I was on a horror movie kick at one point, and I was trying to go through all of the 
classic horror films. I saw The Shining. I love The Shining. I saw The Omen. I love The Omen. I saw The Exorcist. I'm done. The Exorcist ruined my childhood, ruined my uh, pre-adolescence, actually. Um, and that was around the same era I was becoming a Sondheim head, I think. I watched The Exorcist, picked it up from Blockbuster, watched it with my mother and my little sister while we ate uh, smoked salmon and stuffed jalapenos. <laughs> and... I was like, okay, uh, here we go. And then the, the bed starts shaking. What the fuck? And then the thing on the bed and the fuck me, fuck me. Um, I couldn't finish it. My little sister thought it was hilarious. My mom didn't think it was scary at all. She was scared of the shower scene in Psycho, which I thought was laughable and not scary. Uh, the Exorcist uh, put me off of horror movies um, for years and years. Um. I thought about it all day long, uh, every day for months, like while I was at school. I uh, didn't want the lights off when I slept. It plagued me, The Exorcist. Anyway, uh, that's my point. So uh, I also, you know, I wonder about the success of horror films and the people that like them obsessively and the people that like, you know, for instance, like heavy metal music obsessively. And I get annoyed by people who say, I just don't understand why anyone would just want to be scared. Like, okay, maybe I don't, it's not my preference, but can you really not understand? Like, have you never heard of catharsis? Have you not read Plato and Aristotle? It's obvious that as human beings, we need this. Uh, as evidenced by the uh, lasting relevance of horror movies and heavy metal music and monsters and things. And the people that are into this stuff, I wonder, like, I, got, I have a friend named Tim who's, like, really into horror movies, and he's really into, uh, like, pretty, like, uh, actually gory shit, like, tortury gory shit, which I, you know, I don't personally understand, but there must be something there. And the funny thing is, like, Tim is the sweetest human being on the planet. Like, he is just the nicest, most, like, pure-hearted, giving person I've ever met in my life. And I wonder if, like, maybe he gets all of his darkness exorcised through the films that he watches and the music that he listens to. Uh, you know, Murder by Death is an album that he, uh, a band that he, you know, showed me at one point. Like, that, that's his whole vibe. It's his whole aesthetic. But then, you know, and maybe people like me who listen to musicals <laughs> and, you uh, sad white guy music like Elliot Smith and Bright Eyes, maybe we uh, are such uh, demonic assholes in our personal lives because uh, there's that imbalance. Maybe I need to watch more horror movies and listen to more hardcore music so that I can be nicer. It's possible. Someone should write a term paper. I'm not going to. Sweetie Todd transcends the mediums of both musical theater and opera. There are a lot of morons that like to argue that Sweeney Todd is an opera. And Sondheim has words about this, which I'm going to tell you right now. He said, Sweeney Todd has been called by people who care about categories, everything from an opera to a song cycle. When pressed, I have referred to it as a dark operetta, but just as all baggage comes with labels, so do all labels come with baggage. Zing. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, feel free to use that one. Just as all baggage comes with labels, so do all labels come with baggage. 
Um, it's like, a, right, so it's enormous and Shakespearean. It's like too big to even fit in the category of opera because I think opera doesn't just mean something that's sung all the way through. I think it's something that's performed in an opera house for assholes <laughs> in uh, tuxedos and evening gowns. There's no way to get away from that. There's no fucking street opera. And I know LA Opera tried to do this a couple years ago by making The Fly the opera and having full frontal nudity on stage and like, let's bring this to the streets. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You need to be somebody who eats risotto to enjoy an opera. Sweeney Todd's not an opera. And that's what I have to say about that. Jack Kroll in Newsweek, he when it came out, he made the claim that, uh, quote, Sweeney Todd wants to make the same fusion of popular and high culture that Brecht and Vial made in the Three Penny Opera. Yeah, I don't think so. First, I don't think any of that is intentional. I think that um, I think that Sondheim picks a story that he finds interesting, and then he constructs whatever score is necessary to service that story. Um, Clive Barnes in the New York Post likened it to Benjamin Britten. I think that's closer. The music of Benjamin Britten is pretty beautiful, by the way. Um, and I guess that's opera. So I'm contradicting myself there. I'm not saying that opera isn't beautiful. I'm just saying, um, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't enjoy opera. I, I wouldn't sit through one for an evening, but I like it when people sing it in my ears uh, for a few minutes. <laughs> so what's a good entry point to the show? I like to talk about entry points. There's a, a pretty obvious one for this, I think. I would say it is the filmed stage version with George Hearn and Angela Lansbury. One that was filmed on stage with multiple cameras in the early 80s. I need to, uh, I'm going to talk about the movie later and I'm going to not be a fucking hater about it. But I just want to give a disclaimer here. If you have not seen Sweeney Todd and you want to be introduced to Sweeney Todd, do not see the movie movie, the 2008 movie, the Tim Burton movie. Don't see it. You want to go through all this stuff? Uh, you want to see the film stage version? You want to hear, listen to the score? You want to do the whole thing? Great. Then you can watch the movie. Don't come to this via the Tim Burton film. Oh, what the heck? It's trash. Don't go see it. And uh, I want to talk about the film later, and I want to really lead with what's good about it because there are things that are good about it. Sondheim considers it the best film adaptation of any of his musicals or, or rather the only good one I think he's wrong God help me I even tried again in advance of doing this podcast I tried to watch it again that movie can go fuck itself folks this is relevant. Let's go to the Sondheim on Adderall news desk. There is a revival of Sweeney Todd that just opened on Broadway last weekend. And uh, I don't live in New York City, so I haven't seen it. Probably couldn't justify the cost of the ticket if I did. And uh, there's all, what I know about this revival that just opened on Broadway is limited to what I read in reviews of it. The consensus is that it's good. This revival stars Josh Groban. Anybody know who Josh Groban is? He's, I guess, best known as a ballad singer in the tradition of a Michael McDonald or a, uh, what's his name the, with the hair? Uh, uh, Michael Bolton. 
Christmas, you lift me up. Uh, I have some weird peripheral baggage with Josh Groban. Uh, th that's not a term that means anything. Well, and all baggage comes with labels. And I'm going to tell you something. All labels come with baggage. Here's my Josh Groban thing. I, I went to an arts high school here in Los Angeles. And I entered as a sophomore the year after Josh Groban graduated as a senior. I was in the musical theater program. He was apparently hot shit in the musical theater program. Played Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof. I watched the video of it. He was friends with all my friends. Uh, but he was gone by the time I got there. But nobody would shut the fuck up about Josh Groban, even before America knew who the fuck Josh Groban was. And shortly after that, Josh Groban became uh, not a household name, but somebody that people may or may not have heard of. He came back at one point to visit the school, and uh, everybody was around him gushing and shit. I walked up because um, my friends were over there, and I you know, just sort of sidled up. And he was like, hey, man, good to see you again. <laughs> He uh, acted like he remembered who I was or that we had met, but we had not. So Josh Groban is at least a courteous, nice person. It's strange to think of him playing Sweeney Todd. And uh, the reviews are saying that uh, his act, his voice is great and his acting is maybe not that good. Uh, I will reserve judgment because I have not seen it. And I can't imagine I will. I have no plans to go to New York City anytime soon unless I hop on an Amtrak train or in an automobile because I still haven't recovered from my fear of flying, folks. Um, also, like, it seems like the Todd and the love, Mrs. Lovett in this version are, like, sort of younger and sexier. Or maybe I've gotten older. Maybe I've gotten older, everybody. And uh, they they're no longer look like grandparents because I have become a grandparent. Not, not, not a grandparent. You get what I'm saying. The kid from Stranger Things with the teeth. His, uh, he's uh, playing Toby. That, that seems like good casting. Why not? But what's crucial about this revival, apparently, is there's a full orchestra. Very important for Sweeney Todd. Do not synthesize the score. Do not use synthesizers. Do not pare it down like they did with the Michael Cerveris production in 2005. Now, I know that this is happening a lot with theater because nobody goes to the theater because why would they? It's dying. It's a dying art form. So you gotta cut corners, you gotta cut costs. Not all theater should be pared down. Sweeney Todd score needs to be heard with a full booming orchestra. Now, sometimes it's good to pare it down. Parade, for instance. You know, the original production of Parade had an enormous fucking orchestra and an enormous fucking cast, and then it didn't do that well, and then later on they uh, did a smaller version in some fucking basement, and... Uh, <laughs> They had people doing double rolls, and they cut a whole lot out, and they made the orchestrations a little simpler, and it, it worked better. So it's sometimes it's a good idea, not always a good idea. I'm very happy that there's a full orchestra playing Sweeney Todd, and the young man that uh, musical director Hamilton or uh, orchestrated it or whatever, uh, Alex Lackamore, I, I saw him tweet about this. Uh, he's uh, working on this one, and I think that's great. So, um, Sweeney Todd. Let's talk about my personal journey with Sweeney Todd. Like I said, I came to Sondheim via Into the Woods and in West Side Story. Then I got a big picture book called Sondheim by Martin Gottfried from the library. And I had not heard of Sweeney Todd until I flipped through it and I saw pictures of it. Very intriguing, the photos from Sweeney Todd. I also, I also saw a quote 
there's a hole in the world like a great black pit and it's filled with people who are filled with shit. One of the best lines in the show or uh, in anything, really. And that caught my attention. Like, whoa. <laughs> First of all, cursing in a musical. You're speaking my language. I'm 13 years old. Second of all, uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> there was no second of all. I, after this, I got curious. I was sort of learning Sondheim musicals one at a time, so I got the libretto, the book, from the library, most likely the Central Library in Los Angeles on one of the days I went to work with my father downtown. Picked up the CD, which turned out to be the highlights only, and I didn't know it until later. I didn't know that there was an extended version with all the music in it. I just had a CD with the highlights, which was fine for me at the time. Um... And one thing that's weird I've noticed, and I've done this a couple times, when you read the libretto of a musical first and read the lyrics before you hear the songs, I would not recommend doing that, by the way. Sometimes you could be really surprised by what the actual tone of the song or the musical sequence is. Like the beggar woman doing her alms alms. Like, I, 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 in my mind, that was upbeat. And uh, it turned out to be this very mournful thing. And... This happened a lot, actually, with the musical Assassins. I read the script of Assassins, and I thought, this is the darkest, most fucked up thing ever. And then um, when you hear the songs, they're like, oh, it's, 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 it's toe-tapping. It's a toe-tapping good time. <laughs> so when I listened to this score, um, I was genuinely scared of certain parts of it. Similar to my experience with The Exorcist, I would sit around and think about little pieces of the score and get scared uh, sitting around in junior high school and there are most of these moments that scared me are from the finale the finale of Sweeney Todd is a fucking beast Sondheim said actually that he had a better time writing the last 20 minutes of Sweeney Todd than everything he's anything he's ever written and he said he, he told himself okay let's scare them mission accomplished Sondheim hold a press conference baby uh, scared the shit out of me even to this day and, and, and unexpected things in that finale like um, the, the beggar woman's uh, beetle beetle where are you beetle do beetle like something about that just creeps me the fuck out the sound of Mrs. Lovett's scream when she's down below and the judge is clutching her dress the, uh, when he's dying uh, there's a lot of shit like that, man, in that finale. Uh, and a lot of them are just musically scary. The way that, uh, the, the, when the, the face of a barber, the face of a prisoner, the docs is not particularly memorable. How the sort of pretty music starts speeding up. It's scary. It's, anyway, everybody understands what I'm saying. Um, you know what I mean. And it's purposeful and great. The weird, I, 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 I think I had a weird thing about being afraid of music as a child and even as an adult. Like, unlikely pieces of music scare me. There's a song by The Strokes that came out and that I couldn't listen to after dark. And I don't even know what the song is called or how to explain this to you. I'm just saying certain aspects of music can be scary. That's it. So uh, after hearing the soundtrack and reading the script, I saw the video that I told you about, the George Hearn and Angela Lansbury, and wow, that shit is good. Then I got to high school, and for some reason, I was I decided to lie 
to my new musical theater friends at this arts high school and tell them that I had played Toby and Sweeney Todd in an adult production because I was a teenager at the time. I was a bit of a liar as a young man. Um, now I find it hard to not be too honest all the time. But this isn't about me. This is about Sweeney Todd. Uh, I also saw around the same time Kelsey Grammer and Christine Baranski do Sweeney Todd. It was actually the year before I started at this arts high school. Kelsey Grammer wasn't very good. The one thing that he did that I remembered, and I don't know if it was his choice or the director's choice or whatever, it was like the one thing that stood out is, uh, there's going to be some spoilers, by the way. If you haven't seen Sweeney Todd uh, and you want to ever see Sweeney Todd, because the spoilers in this really will ruin your entire experience of it, don't listen to this podcast anymore, please. Pause your device. Make your way over to your Apple TV. You're going to rent this fucking thing. The George Hearn and Angela Lansbury version. It's going to cost you, let's say, $3.99. Two cups of coffee. Can we just can we just do that? Watch Sweeney Todd. Anyway, so at the end, when uh, Sweeney dies, <laughs> when Toby, who's lost his mind in the room with the meat grinder, slits his throat, Kelsey Grammer did a thing where he... Um, he like uh, pulled his collar down, producing his throat to Toby. So it was like a suicide by proxy. Anyway, that was the one interesting thing I remember from the boring and wooden performance of Kelsey Grammer as Sweeney Todd. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, development process of Sweeney Todd, the rehearsal process, et cetera, et cetera. So in finishing the hat, Sondheim talked about how he was inspired as a teenager by uh, crime films and suspense films, like I said. Um, and one in particular he talks about, <clears throat> I have not seen this, it's called Hangover Square. It's a movie about a composer who hears a high-pitched sound and goes murderously insane. A composer, like a, a, a pitch makes him go nuts, so the sound, so, which I, 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 if I may, reminds me a little bit of Tar movie that came out um this past year uh tar great film if you haven't seen it i recommend everybody go see tar tar just got the sondheim on adderall bump i think it's gonna uh we're gonna see some uh we're gonna move some product here you're welcome tar so anyway hangover square uh the score was written by bernard herman award-winning master bernard herman who uh did probably the definitive suspense movie music score. He did all the Hitchcock film scores, but probably the most iconic is the one for Psycho. And I know you're what you're thinking. You're thinking those dissonant violins when she's getting stabbed in the shower with the eh, 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 eh. And you're right. That is uh, important. But really the opening credit music and the credit that's played throughout, the, credit, the music that's played throughout in Psycho is pretty fucking great. I may have even noodled on it a little too closely. Anyway, don't sue me, Bernard Herman Estate. Don't listen to this. So, uh, Sondheim saw this movie. He was 15 years old when it came out. He saw it in the theater. We don't have DVD players. We don't have streaming video. He went to the movies. They showed the first page of the score that this composer character was about to play in the movie he made sure to memorize it when he saw it on the screen and he went home and played it 
because this kid is a fucking savant and he says he knows how to play it to this day. Well, he said that in Finishing the Hat, which was uh, published in 2010. Sondheim is dead. I can't imagine he knows uh, how to play that beyond the grave. Maybe he does. I don't know what's waiting for us all when we shuffle off our mortal coil. <coughs> so um, many, 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 many years later in the 70s, he goes and sees um, uh, the Christopher Bond adaptation of Sweeney Todd, which is an old melodrama. And this is an uh, old traditional melodrama form in London. We, uh, and I don't know if anybody's, any of you modern audiences <laughs> have seen a traditional melodrama. I saw one uh, in my youth The people were doing a sort of a revival or a, a, sorry, a, a, a pastiche of one of an old melodrama. There's a piano player in the lobby. You're supposed to hiss at the bad guy and he literally twists his mustache uh, and you hiss at him and everybody has a grand old time. So... Um, and it reminded Sondheim of uh, a phenomenon called Grand Guignol, a French uh, form of entertaining uh, horrific gruesomeness. Uh, so, yeah, he had the, 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 making Sweeney Todd into a musical uniquely was Sondheim's idea. It seems like a lot of these, uh, at least so far, have been somebody else comes to him with a thing and he's like, let's make that into a musical. Uh, and in this case, it's all springs from Sondheim's mind, and he uh, gets his buddies to uh, on board. Although Harold Prince is very reluctant. Um, so yeah, like I said, Sweeney Todd is an old story. The original was written in 1847. Christopher Bond's version in the 70s, uh, Sondheim said it was like the other side of farce. It was very cleverly plotted. It had surprising things in the story, and this carries through with the musical. I think one of the greatest things about the musical Sweeney Todd is its plot and the way that it develops and the brilliance of the revelations. And again, I'm going to talk about some of these, so don't fucking listen any further. I didn't make a big deal about this with any of the other episodes, but it's a big deal with Sweeney Todd. So stop fucking listening if you haven't seen it. I told you already. Uh, got, well, the, and the big one, which... Uh, is just so masterfully developed, like I said, is the um, the revelation that the beggar woman is Lucy. Okay? So Sweeney Todd's avenging the death of his wife. There's some batty old beggar woman hanging around the whole show. And then at the end, she, he's like, get the fuck out of here. I'm busy. And he slits her throat. And then he sees her corpse and realizes it's his wife and he killed her. The way that he's mid-sentence and then the music goes, -na! and then Len Carreyou, the original Sweeney Todd, on the album, the way he goes, oh no, <laughs> I can't do it justice, and I probably just broke everybody's eardrums with that. Uh, George Hearn doesn't quite do that justice. I think it's because George Hearn is like screaming the whole show, but Len Carreyou on that oh no is... Um, I'm getting chills just thinking about it, folks. Fucking amazing. Interestingly enough, when it was announced by the producers years before it finally went up, they, the producer says, this will be very high comedy and it will not try and scare you. <laughs> yeah, right. So that didn't come true. 
Sondheim put in musical motifs for all the characters. There are a lot of uh, reprises in it, and they're all very intentional. He doesn't do this bullshit thing that Les Mis does, and I already complained about this in a previous episode, where Les Mis keeps repeating and reprising the same shit over and over again, but without any conscious reason. They have everybody do the tell me quick da 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 do 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 da da and it could be anybody singing that, and it won't matter. The fucking, uh, you know, Javert will sing it, the guy with the that saves him at the beginning sings it whoever whatever the fuck sings it <coughs> sondheim only reprises a melody or a musical motif if there's a reason for it if it's connected to the character it's connected to the story and in this one check this out there's a clue to that revelation about the beggar room the beggar woman in the music because right before the beggar woman dies She's humming that thing that I just told you about. The thing actually that's scary with the beetle, 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 dumpling, beetle, dumpling. That is the same as the minuet uh, that's played at the masked ball in the flashback sequence at the beginning where she, Lucy, who we don't know is the beggar woman yet, gets, uh, I guess, publicly raped by the judge. So that's pretty smart, right? <laughs> so Sweeney Todd won a bunch of awards. It didn't make its money back. John Lahr in Harper's Magazine uh, panned it and said that Sondheim represented the death of the American musical. And then we found out later that uh, John Lahr had not seen the show when he'd said that. He'd only read the script, and he's an asshole. That's kind of a no-no, am I right? My father was a theater critic, and full disclosure... My father, uh, once he started to get sick towards the end of his uh, theater critic career, we may or may not have left at intermission at a few of these shows. <laughs> oh, uh, I'll give you an example. We left at intermission when we saw The Phantom of the Opera. So I just, I'm probably no better than John Lahr. I've never seen the second act of Phantom of the Opera. I've heard the songs. I saw the fucking chandelier fall before intermission. Isn't that what everyone was excited about? The chandelier falling? Is there something I'm missing? Should I see the sequel, Love Never Dies? I feel like I shouldn't. I'm not going to. I plan to talk at length in this podcast about Angela Lansbury because Angela Lansbury is the key to the success of the show. Angela Lansbury is one of my favorite human beings who have ever lived. That's strong. One of my favorite uh, performers ever. And I'm going to talk about her in great detail. I did a deep dive into her life. Well, I read her Wikipedia. I don't want to be grandiose about this. But I learned some things about Angela Lansbury that made me love her even more than I already loved her because she's essentially my grandmother. And if you're a millennial like me, she's your grandmother too because, goddammit, she's Mrs. Potts. And um, she's our surrogate grandmother. And her performance in Sweeney Todd is what makes it uh, a show. That is great, I think. Otherwise, it would be a ponderous Les Mis type show. Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Lovett uh, really squares things away. Here's what she said about Sweeney Todd in the Craig Zayden book, Sondheim and Company. She said, quote, It had a magnetic effect on people, and the New York audiences who had come to previews and didn't particularly like it suddenly were told to pull up their socks, open their eyes and their ears, and receive this extraordinary piece of work and give it the attention it deserved. And thank goodness they did. Because, you know, sometimes you just have to educate an audience. You're goddamn right you do, Angie. I mean, everything now is so infantilizing, right, guys? 
I mean, everything is so Beetlejuice Adams family. But on the other hand, I mean, Sondheim shows are having a renaissance, or they not a renaissance, but they've they've they were before their time, and people are kind of getting them now. I mean, things are more fragmented overall. I guess there is no singular Broadway musical audience, and I, if there is one, it's there isn't one. So the the Broadway musical audience, the the the, the economics of Broadway have completely changed it into something where you can't really do anything daring because it's so fucking expensive to make one and to put one on and none of it makes any money. So it's really, and also here's the other, and also it's so fucking expensive to live in Manhattan. Nobody, nobody who's artistic lives in Manhattan, right? Unless you're, you've got a big bag of money. So Broadway shows are now for out-of-towners, and out-of-towners want to see a show based on a movie they've seen many times. So we end up with shit like, uh, you know what we end up with. And uh, the tide might turn on that. God damn it, it has to. I don't even know what my point was. I've gone off on a tangent. This is what we do in Sondheim on Adderall, folks. If you're a new listener, if you're a Sweeney Todd head that's listening for the first time, we're not going to talk in any organized fashion about any of this. So uh, get used to that right now. I like how we do a podcast where I beg everybody the whole time to stop listening to it. It's a good uh, business strategy, isn't it? So Sweeney Todd, Sweeney Todd, Sweeney Todd, Sweeney Todd, where the fuck were we? So in finishing the hat, he says, quote, what I wanted to write was a horror movie. The whole point of the thing is that it's a background score for a horror film, which is what I intended to do and what it is. All those chords and that whole kind of harmonic structure, the use of electric sounds and the loud crashing organ had a wonderful gothic feeling. Unquote. By the way, I'm sorry, that's not from Finishing the Hat. That's from the Zayden book. So yeah, he's borrowing from Bernard Herrmann. And if you know much about horror movie scores... And the nuts and bolts of them, it's really interesting. I don't know where the fuck I heard this. I think yeah, – so so the, the people – and it's not so much the music, but they embed sensa- like the sensation of like a baby crying or water boiling that preys on our human instincts to be like, wait, what the fuck's going on? Or like, oh shit, like something's about to happen. Uh, I guess that's not – a very uh, interesting or unique revelation. But that, I, I, I whatever. So, the, and Jaws is a really good example of the way that the tempo increases with Jaws, where you start with the da na and then you get the oh, Jesus Christ, what's about to happen? And then the shark's going to eat you. The factory whistle in Sweeney Todd is very scary. It scares me every time. I better not uh, say too many more things I need to edit out because I don't want to keep everybody too on edge. Uh, Sondheim didn't want to make an opera, obviously, but he needed to sustain terror by having continuous music. That's what he says, um, which is why there, it's, there's so much singing and uh, whatever. He uses the Dies Irae in it. You know what Dies Irae is? You do. You've heard it. It's an old, it's a, the, the Mass of the Dead from the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know how the whole thing goes. I bet you there's no copyright on DSC Ray, because that would be insane. So I can hum that. 
Uh, that comes up also in uh, The Shining. Uh, the aforementioned Stanley Kubrick's The Shining in the opening sequence going up that hill. You know, and it's funny. It's music from the 13th century, but it may be because of our uh, generational trauma from the Roman Catholic Church. We all, it, it, it inspires a little something in, all, in us all. Sondheim uses it in Sweeney Todd in both uh, My Friends, he sort of inverts it in the melody of My Friends, and the bridge to the ballad of Sweeney Todd. On the... Like he uses uh, pieces of that, the Dies Irae. That must be even scarier if you're a lapsed Catholic or if you grew... Or a practicing Catholic. I mean, that must um, make you scared because it means death. It means someone's died or someone's going to die. Look out. So the themes of Sweeney Todd are pretty self-evident, I think. There was a bit of a disagreement between Prince and Sondheim on this. It's funny how Harold Prince, the director of this and Sondheim's longtime collaborator, is like not really on board with, the, with Sweeney Todd. until I guess until later, but maybe never. I don't know. So he... Sondheim says that Sweeney Todd is about personal obsession and it's like Oedipus, like the fatal knowledge. Like that's it's the, what we talked about that Sweeney has towards the end about what he's done with the beggar woman. It's like the fatal knowledge of Oedipus. Whoops, I fucked my mom and killed my dad. Or flip that. Uh, you know, that, that was not in chronological order. You know what Oedipus did. Anyway, uh, Harold Prince said he got interested in the show when he realized maybe it was about revenge and also the he what he calls the struggle of the working class and the industrial age, like people's spirits being crushed by all these machines. And that is interesting. I think it's about both, but I don't think it's about like working class struggle. I think it's about like working, I think it's about class warfare. And I think even maybe the concept of a working class struggle is uh, kind of American because, you know, we have different concept, uh, conception of what a working class is in the United States. We have more of a consciousness of class mobility here and none of us ever really rise up or eat the rich because we all want to be the rich and we feel that we can be the rich. We can have a Horatio Alger rags to riches story. I'm not saying anything creative here. But in the UK, there's more working class pride. You grow up working class. Your family's working class. Your parents were. You were. Your kids are. It's fine. Um, and I'm, I'm, sure, I'm, 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 I'm sure that's changed <laughs> since the 19th century. But in the 19th century, I don't think that it's about like – a working struggling to get out of the working class. I think it's about working class people wanting to wage war on the upper class. And, you know, Sondheim is apolitical to his bones. And so I can see why this was not his intention with it, even though it comes out in these lyrics for sure. You know, um, I'm so Sweeney Todd is a working class man who is made to suffer an unspeakable injustice, right? I mean, like, a rich, powerful man, Judge Turpin, wants to fuck his wife. So he sends him to prison island. Uh, God, can you imagine how easy it was to pick up chicks back then? You just knock the husband on the head and if he's poor and send him to, a, I'm, I'm assuming, Australia uh, to uh, 
a prison island and then you just take his wife for your own. Uh, I'm kidding, everybody. This is a satire, humor. Uh, it's not funny. So he, Sweeney Todd wants to kill this man for a specific reason. And then before, over the course of the story, he has this breakdown and decides that he wants to kill many men. He wants to be a fucking sword of justice and kill uh, what he calls the privileged few at the beginning, making a mock of the vermin in the lower of zoo. <laughs> and eventually, it actually takes him really no time at all that he's just going to slit everybody's throat. <laughs> just about everybody. Like, right after his epiphany, where you have this big breakdown in a little priest, I mean, they're not just talking about uh, the powerful men they're going to kill. They're, they're talking about how they're going to kill everybody. Like all of those, uh, all, all, uh, they, 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 they're not going to discriminate great from small. It's just, uh, it's blind rage directed in all directions. <sighs> I just exhausted myself with talking about this topic. The New York Times, Richard Eater said something very stupid <laughs> in my mind. He said, quote, there is in fact no serious social message in Sweeney Todd. And at the end, when the cast lines up on stage and points to us singing that there are Sweeney's all about, the point is unproven. All right, first of all, asshole, why do you need a serious social message? Is this uh, Schoolhouse Rock? Or can you decide for yourself what it means? You dullard. It's a dumb review. There's a lot of things going on in Sweeney Todd. There's themes, it's open to interpretation, and that's what good art should do. People that watch musicals are trained to be spoon-fed things, and by God, they shouldn't be. Sweeney Todd uh, does not have a neat, it's not a neat uh, moral morality tale. It is a tale. Crucially, it is a tale. Attend the tale, if you will. But it, it doesn't, it's a serious social message. Like, that's not what we're trying to do here, pal. Also, I, do, I, think, I think when he points to all of us in the audience, uh, isn't that Sweeney there beside you? I mean, to seek revenge may lead to hell, but everyone does it, though seldom as well. I mean, it's just, it's, you could interpret that, the, the uh, sort of pedestrian way of saying like, oh, look out, there's violent, violent criminals everywhere. Or you could interpret that as we are all Sweeney Todd. Um, I don't think anyone would interpret it the first way that I just said. Yeah, it's obvious. I'm not breaking new ground here. I'm very self-conscious today about my interpretations, thinking that they are uh, obvious. That, that must be getting tiresome. I'm going to stop qualifying my interpretations by apologizing for them and saying they may be obvious. Th that was the last time. I'll do that. If I do it again, I'll, I'll <laughs> delete it. So... Um, I think what makes the story so interesting, what makes the show so um, groundbreaking is the way that it juxtaposes such a fucked up, gruesome story with like a really huge score that's got like romantic qualities to it. And that's why just reading it does not do the trick, which is why that asshole uh, that wrote that review, John Lar, is that Bert Lar's son? Anyway, uh, is, is an idiot because the whole point is the way that the music services the story. 
And the characters are so, you know, I used to think that Sweeney Todd was one dimensional as a character and I don't think so anymore. Mrs. Lovett is one of the best musical theater characters ever written. And I want to take a look at something that Hugh Wheeler said. He's the book writer, also wrote the book to A Little Night Music. He said, quote, the hardest thing of all was how to take these two really disgusting people and write them in such a way that the audience can rather love them. And I think people did love Mrs. Lovett, yet she doesn't have a single redeeming feature. And I think that's well put. I think a lot of that is uh, owed to the performance of Angela Lansbury. But I think even now, even with the advances that we've made in gender equality, I think that it's still really hard for American audiences, at least, to accept a female antihero. Like, they are few and far between, and a lot of times when it's attempted, it doesn't go well, and people can't handle it. Or, do you get what I'm saying? Like, the whole Tony Soprano, Walter White thing, where we find ourselves rooting for a main character who is mostly bad. Um, I think they tried this a bit with Nurse Jackie. I don't know if anyone saw that movie, I Care A Lot, from a couple years ago. Man, oh man, I, I didn't care for that film. But that was what was being attempted there. And they couched it in this uh, sort of uh, girl boss feminism thing. And I got the sense halfway through, like, oh, I'm supposed to love this character, even though she's doing awful things. And I, I'm sorry to say I did not in that case. Wendy Bird in Ozark. I'm doing a little Ozark rewatch with the girlfriend uh, while we're both sick. I think that that's a really well-written female antihero. The point I'm trying to make here is it's, it's seldom done well, and maybe American audiences are still too chauvinistic to accept a female antihero. Uh, and it's why everybody thought that Walter White was based and that Skylar White was an annoying shrew, because uh, we're all assholes. Judge Turpin is the most, possibly the most detestable villain in musical theater history, or certainly in any Sondheim show. I mean, this guy, this guy is rough. This guy is not a nice guy. Uh, and I love uh, the performance of Edmund Lindek in this. He has a song that is cut from the show. <laughs> Which is also, there were three songs called Joanna. It's down to two in the final version here. Uh, one for Anthony, one for Sweeney. But there was actually one for the judge. Where he's singing this song while he's looking at his adopted daughter. Who's emerging into womanhood through a keyhole. Like a hole in the wall. And he's masturbating and whipping himself. And there's a point in the song, there's the climax of the song is a uh, orgasmic climax for the character. And Sondheim wanted to be the first composer, this is his words, to have an orgasm in the middle of a song. And uh, Harold Prince was very against this and uh, urged him to cut it out. And in finishing the hat, Sondheim says that Prince, quote, failed to see the humor in it. I mean, I think it's funny just because of how over the top it is, but I dare say I failed to see the humor in it. It's pretty upsetting, actually. And we're back. Okay, I had another one of my famous coughing fits in the middle of that. Um, I'm also, I don't know if you can tell, I'm a little amped up here uh, more than usual uh, for this episode. I think I was worried that I might not have the uh, energy or the spirit to 
keep this thing buoyant, and so I had one of my uh, girlfriend's new uh, favorite energy drinks, Joy Burst, which is kind of a Celsius knockoff. It's like a healthy uh, energy drink, and uh, I'm flying, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if you noticed. Anyway, getting through these notes. Uh, anyway, so... Um, Let's talk about the great Angela Lansbury and uh, or really the character of Mrs. Lovett. Uh, because, like I said, I think that Mrs. Lovett is crucial to um, the show succeeding. I don't want to say working. I don't want to say the show works because I hate it when people say that. And I accidentally said it like 70 times after saying I didn't like it in previous episodes. So I'm not, uh, I'm going to be not saying that. I'm a hypocrite. Don't believe a word I say on this podcast. This is all uh, hyperbole, opinion, and most of it is contradictory. So um, I would venture to say that Angela Lansbury in Sweeney Todd is like one of the top five performances in a musical ever by anybody. Unmatched. Uh, I mean, she's certainly unmatched in this role. I don't think that there's anything really that can be added to the role of Mrs. Lovett. And I mean, I am a sometimes actor and I kind of just do musicals that I like uh, when they I see that there are auditions for them. But there are certain roles, and I dare say most of them are roles that have been originated by Mandy Patinkin, where it's like, why would I want to take a stab at that when it has been perfected? Um, like, I don't think there's any real reason to attempt to play George in Sunday in the Park with George, because I think it was just done so goddamn well. Or probably Dot in Sunday in the Park with George either. I think Mrs. Lovett is one of these. And, you know, fuck Patti Lapone, fuck Christine Baranski, fuck all of them. I mean, it's not, it's done. It's finished. Angela Lensbury nailed it on the first try. So, yeah. But she's, uh, we lost her last year. And uh, we still want to watch the show. So we got to get somebody to come in and uh, and do it. But just please don't have some fresh take on how to do Mrs. Lovett. Helena Bonham fucking Carter. You know, um, please just uh, st stick to the uh, program here because Angie uh, figured it out already. Like, I, so I love the way that she goes in and out of head voice, you know, when she's singing. Like, goes, and it works so well for the character. Like, there's so much energy where she's, like, belting, but then she's tender and her thoughts are going a mile a minute, um, like mine in this episode. Um, and... Like, when she's singing, especially The Worst Pies in London, like, you're worried she's going to hurt herself. You're like, this old woman is going to hurt herself if she doesn't calm down. <laughs> now, Angela Lansbury was 54 years old when Sweeney Todd premiered on Broadway, but I would venture to say she has been an old woman her entire life. And, uh, by the way, my, I bored my ex when we were together with uh, that particular opinion at one point, And she said, she agreed and said, yeah, she's an old soul on the outside. Um, which I thought was funny. So, anyway. Um, Angela Lansbury, old soul on the outside. Uh, she's, and I was wondering, like, if you look back at her in The Manchurian Candidate, and it's like stuff she did in the 50s. She looks old, and I wonder, is it just because she was presented to me as an old woman when I was a child? But no, like, she was only cast in old maternal roles when she was in her late 20s. She just has that vibe. And so that's why it seems like, I mean, she lived to be pretty 
fucking... I mean, she lived to be 97 years old. Uh, but she seems to have been an old lady for our entire life. Put it that way. Um, Sweeney Todd came out before I was born, like five years before my birth, and she's an old lady in it. And now I'm pushing 40 and she died last year. That doesn't make any sense. But uh, that's what happened. So I did a little reading about Angela Lansbury. She came to America during the Blitz in England. The uh, Blitzkrieg, Lightning War. And um, is it like she hung out with her, like her mom was a performer and they hung out with like the gay underground in Los Angeles. And she went to see Krishnamurti speak and she went and saw Aldous Huxley speak. She eventually married a gay guy, Richard Cromwell, and they both thought that she could turn him, that he would become straight, and they divorced after a year, and then they stayed friends for the rest of their lives. Uh, and so she did all this uh, Hollywood shit. Uh, she finally, uh, you know, the Manchurian Candidate is her breakthrough role on film. On Broadway, she does anti-mame, which turns her into a star, but also, more importantly, like, a big gay icon. Uh, the gays love her. And there are certain performers that uh, have this sort of following after her. We had Cher and um, Cher and uh, <laughs> also other people. Kathy Griffin, her whole thing was, oh, my gays. Um, I don't know if she's Kathy Griffin does that anymore. Now she just makes deeply unfunny political comedy, I guess, that um, I agree with but would rather not listen to. And, um, I mean, I, I know of... Angela Lansbury primarily for Murder, She Wrote, because Murder, She Wrote was appointment television in my house in the early 90s. We watched it on Sundays. Uh, doesn't hold up, I should tell you that. Do not schedule a Murder, She Wrote rewatch, because, uh, boy, it's, it's not as good as it seemed back then. I could be wrong. Another uh, way that uh, Angela Lansbury had a presence in my upbringing was... Um, Apparently, like, my parents had this whole idea of what she did with her drug-addicted son, where, like, her son was addicted to drugs, and I guess her daughter, too. She was, like, mixed up with the Manson family. And they, they, they solved the problem by taking them to the Irish countryside, where they got clean. And my parents were always threatening to do this. <laughs> Which, uh... You know, that may have been an anomaly. I don't think that will work every time. I don't even know if it did work for her kids. Or her ki did her kids get clean? How are the Lansburys doing? Somebody, uh, I didn't follow up on that. Anyway, obviously she played Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast and uh, enchanted a generation. Also, uh, this is a smaller one. Uh, did anyone see the TV movie in the 90s? It was a movie musical, Mrs. Santa Claus. I have that music in my head. And that score, I looked it up because I was like, what the fuck was that? And where did it go? It was The score was by Jerry Herman, who did Mame and uh, La Caja Falls and all that shit. Um, but there's a song in that, I mean the title song, I Mrs. Santa Claus, do, 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 do. I Mrs. Santa Claus, do, 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 do. That is in my head to this day. Maybe it's been perverted over time by my own uh, psyche, but uh, it doesn't sound like that. But that's how it sounds in my head from seeing it live on television in, let's call it, 1997. So, yeah, Angela Lansbury is, uh, is just a, it's the role of a lifetime, and she was born to play it, and uh, I love Mrs. Lovett forever. But only as played by Angela Lansbury. Everyone else can fuck off. 
Let's talk about Sweeney, though. So, uh, Len Carriou on the original cast album is, uh, you know, he's the definitive one for me because he's the first one I heard. We got George Hearn in the, uh, you know, filmed play version, and he's good. But like I said, he does scream the whole time, and it does undercut some of those bigger moments. He screams most of the song Epiphany, which is a great song. And, you know, Len Carriou... He's got like one part where he, he he mostly sings it until he goes to the come on, come on. Who, sir? You, sir? No one's in the chair. Come on, come on! Uh, and that's a good example. It's like that's my favorite part of that song because you're like, oh, fuck. Because uh, <laughs> it's jarring. Whereas uh, Hearn is just like, oh, sir! You, sir! No one's in the chair. Come on, come on! Sweetie, sweetie. It's just all screamed and it gets, I don't think it gets jarring. It's, he's a good screamer, but uh, choose your screams, George. Let's scream. Uh, choose them. You have to discriminate where you're going to scream to make it interesting. Original cast and the filmed play version, we have Ken Jennings playing uh, Toby. Now I know what you're thinking. Jeopardy champ? Ken Jennings, the Mormon? No. This is another person with the name Ken Jennings. It's not impossible. It's a fairly nondescript white guy name. He went on to do Sideshow, and you're in town. Sideshow is a weird musical. My God. I wish it was a Sondheim musical so I could talk about it. I have thoughts about Sideshow, the, the, the musical about conjoined twins. What a weird fucking show that is. So um, I love uh, the voice of Ken Jennings and the overall weirdness of Ken Jennings. He's like a, got a weird voice, and he's a weird dude, and his portrayal of Toby is very unsettling. Let's put it that way. We get Victor Garber in uh, the role of Anthony. Now, we're going to see Victor Garber later in film, folks. We're going to see him in uh, Titanic. He's going to be that captain of the Titanic who's a real smartass about not having enough lifeboats and then feels real guilty. And we're going to see him in uh, Legally Blonde. with uh, the, 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 He's the lawyer, boss, mentor of the whatever, Reese Witherspoon. And then he, there's a Me Too situation that's very uncomfortable. Hey, he's in a lot of things. The First Wives Club. I bet you wouldn't think I'm the kind of guy that would watch The First Wives Club. Let me tell you something. I've seen The First Wives Club upwards of ten times because it was a VHS tape in my house for some reason. And uh, it's not, you know, it's a good movie. <laughs> We got uh, Meryl Louise playing the beggar woman. She's got a nice voice. She played Susan in Company. Uh, Susan of Peter and Susan, the least consequential couple in Company. We got Edwin Lindeck playing the judge. Also uh, went on to play many old men. Also happened to be an old man forever, just like Angela Lansbury. Just always played old men. If you saw his face, you'd know what I was talking about. A lot of 90s movies, every time an old man... That's supposed to be like, <laughs> uh, we'll see him later in Into the Woods too, uh, playing Cinderella's father, which, why the fuck is he even there? He has two lines. Let's talk about that later. Let's talk about that in the Into the Woods episode. Sarah Rice playing Joanna. I don't know. Is that the same one that played it in the George Hearn version? I gotta check on that. I don't want to fuck this up. Okay, quick informal brush up on who played Joanna. Uh, no, that is not Sarah Rice. That is somebody called Betsy Jocelyn, who was in the original cast playing uh, in the ensemble and then moved her way up 
to the role of Joanna. I like I don't I can't speak to Sarah Rice's performance. She sounds nice uh, on the album original cast recording. True soprano. Uh, Greenfinch and Linnet Bird to this day is like uh, a lot of sopranos use it as a, a thing to do a thing. But um, Betsy Jocelyn, I, I like her performance in the filmed version because, and maybe everybody does this and it's not unique to her. She plays Joanna as kind of like mentally challenged or <laughs> disturbed. Uh, like somebody that has lived in a uh, room her whole life. But like she faithfully plays it that way. Because that's the story of a lot of fairy tales. That's the main, like of Rapunzel and whatnot, somebody that spent their whole life uh, locked in a tower. And Joanna and Sweeney Todd is maybe the first time that we see <laughs> the tragic effects of what that, you know, what that would do to a person in Joanna. She's not like a real person. Like she's got beautiful yellow hair and uh, Anthony falls in love with her, uh, but she's uh, she's not all there. She's not all with it, this Joanna. She's uh, a fucked up person that talks to, sings about birds. Now, I can't go through every song in this show because there's a trillion of them. It's mostly sung. Um, I want to talk about some of my faves or some of the most prominent ones. I would say, if pressed, for what the best song in Sweeney Todd is. My answer at the age of 39 is the same as my answer at the age of 13, A Little Priest, the song that closes the first act. This is a God-tier Stephen Sondheim song. And I'm not just saying because it's funny, which it is, and it's clever. I mean, all of the, uh, if you don't know, it's a song where they're talking about, uh, oh, what each person would taste like because they have the idea of it to, um, you know, to, to, to eat people or to cook people into pies. That's all great. The wordplay is great. Some shepherd's pie peppered with actual shepherd. It's it's amazing. All of it is great. Stop saying amazing so much, Chris. Um, but I think what really ties the song together is the history of the world sections, the refrains, uh, not refrains, but the, those, those interludes and that make it into a class critique, right? Uh, and, and, and that's what really makes it visceral. Like it's, it goes from being like a funny, weird, whoa kind of song to being like a fuck yeah kind of song with the, the history of the world. My love is those below serving those up above. That's, those are, um, those are amazing. Those are really great. <laughs> I almost said amazing again. Those are great moments in, uh, the song. And also, Crucial to A Little Priest is the intro, the opening of a song, where um, seems a downright shame, seems an awful waste, where Mrs. Lovett is having the idea. And, ugh, like, the, the filmed version with George Hearn and Angela Lansbury, my favorite part of that is that you hear the reaction of the audience. And this is maybe something that we'll never get back again. With the fucking internet, you know, if you go to see Sweeney Todd, you're going to be like, oh, it's the show about the guy that cooks the people up into meat pies. The, the, the barber that kills people and then the lady that cooks them into pies. If you go to see this thing and you don't know that's coming, this moment is like you're, 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 you're sort of 
figuring out where she's coming from along with Sweeney. And you can hear the audience in that film play version react. And it's like a mix of, like, it's not, they're not groaning. Like, it's like awe and disgust. Like, they're, you hear them be like, oh, oh, sort of. Eh, It's not really like that. But it's something that we'll probably never get again with Sweeney Todd because everybody knows going in what it's about. But it takes a while for the play to get there. And they don't even get there until the end of the first act. And, yeah, when she says, um, the price of meat, what it is, when you get it, if you get it, you can hear the audience be like, oh. Uh, I, I, I love it. God, I love theater. I want to do some more theater. Can somebody cast me in a fucking show? Can someone cast me as Sweeney Todd? I'm ready. I don't even need to memorize it. It's all up here already, guys. Sondheim points out that he made some mistakes in the lyrics. Um, like uh, the politician put it on a... Oh, it's actually in the same line. Uh, <laughs> Here's a politician so oily it's served with a doily have one. And then Sweeney says, put it on a bun. Well, you never know if it's going to run. So that's a shitty dad joke. It's like not the best part in the song, uh, point in the song. But it's also contains two um, mistakes because... Uh, Sondheim found out later that in the UK they do not run for office they stand for office and a bun is like a sweet uh, little treat it's not a thing that you would put meat on like a, a hamburger bun in America so that whole thing is fucked up it's a uh, Sondheim faux pas however it's still the best song in the show doesn't fuck it up from being the best song in the show The Worst Pies in London is one of my favorite songs too um when I first got into musicals, I would always skip the women's songs because I just wanted to sing along and imagine myself on stage. I wanted to be in my bedroom, move my bedroom furniture around like I was on the stage and pretend I was on the stage. So anytime there's a female solo or uh, a man doesn't sing for a while, you're going to find um, 13-year-old Chris pressing the skip button on his CD player. If I don't press the skip button, it's because the song is fucking awesome. And Worst Pies in London is an example of this. So funny. So smart. Uh, as far as, like, as an intro to a character. Like, the way that the, the that he's got the banging dough and the killing of bugs, like, baked into the lyrics of it and the music of it. You don't get that, I think, when you got someone doing music and someone doing lyrics. I think that that's... I don't know. It's great. It's also like a huge vibe shift from how the first 10 minutes of the show have gone. Like it's been dark and brooding and there's no place like London. and his wife. Yeah, Sweeney is very, oh, something's upsetting him. Oh, and it's dark and we just docked the ship. And, uh, and then clang, clang, clang. Here comes this lady with the, the worst pies in London. It's... um. And that just like she, she, she keeps her mood keeps changing and her subject matter keeps changing. She's just going off the fucking rails. And Sondheim talks about this uh, in finishing the hat. He says, quote, he composed the, the first half of the song as a seemingly incoherent monologue and then repeated it with variations. The only line heard more than once being the worst pies in London. When the audience hears that phrase the second time, the apparent formlessness of the song drops away and they feel at home. 
finally not rhyming the last word, leaves Mrs. Lovett the unfocused character she seems to be. And that's just the, uh, that's master songwriting. And that's, I, I talked a little bit about that with Getting Married Today, and that's a similar song. The fact that that doesn't rhyme reflects her disordered thinking. So it's like she's, Amy in Getting Married Today is losing her, is, is, is uh, manic and losing her mind, but it's focused on one thing. But in this one, she's completely unfocused, right? But then right after that, Mrs. Lovett has another song that starts like there's two lines of dialogue and then she starts singing a whole other song called Poor Thing, which is focused. And it's because she realizes that this might be Benjamin Barker and she's fucking with him and she wants to get him to reveal himself. And this is why you need a theater person to write good musical theater and not just a uh, fucking music nerd. Not a, uh, you know, <laughs> socially awkward uh, dude with a, you know, finale software. <laughs> you need someone that's been around the theater that understands how theater works. Side note, another song that I never skip in um, the lady song when I'm uh, trying to sing along and match myself in it um, is uh, Helpless in Hamilton. That song is uh, a banger. I like that song. Although I can't really play most of the roles in Hamilton, except for the goddamn king. And even that, you know, probably not. So uh, here we go. Worst Pies in London. Uh, poor thing. Epiphany. They call it the turning point of the show, the writing uh, team. It's a really insane song. I mean, literally insane. It's him going insane. It, it, it's, it, and it, it sounds like it was written by somebody who's coked up. Like, uh, like My Life is Good by Randy Newman. It's like, what the, whoa, what the fuck? It's like, what what were you on? The way that it goes from one thing to the next and, you know, as it gets crazier, again, the rhymes go away and, uh, and it's unhinged. And uh, I feel like there's something missing from George Hearn's performance of this, which is largely screaming, and Len Carew's performance of this, which is kind of subdued. And certainly from Johnny Depp's performance. And um, I think that, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen everybody play G Sweeney Todd. I'm, I haven't seen Josh Groban do it, although I don't have high hopes for him. I think it needs to be more of a, uh, I, I think the breakdown, uh, what, what, I, I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. I don't know what I want, folks. But I want something more from the performance of Sweeney singing Epiphany. The music provides the breakdown. And if you're listening to the album, you're like, okay, this is a musical breakdown. Great. But I guess what I'm saying is we got Cariou is brooding, right? He's brooding the whole show. And then he kind of broods through this song. Hearn screams, at last my arm is complete again, like right towards the beginning, and then he screams this song, and it's just him screaming again, just a little bit more of it, and then Johnny Depp, the whole thing sucks. I think there needs to be more of like a big changeover from brooding to screaming. Does that make sense? Anyway, who cares? Kiss Me, that whole sequence, I really like that one. That's like satisfying the way it sounds. Um, I don't love the ladies and their sensitivities. I don't like that part as much as uh, the Kiss Me part. Also, the counterpoint of Joanna and Anthony. I think it's song. the song is necessary to show their sort of substancelessness of their romance. 
and how innocent it is. Like, like I said, Joanna is mentally ill <laughs> or mentally challenged. And Anthony's just a young guy that saw a lady with yellow hair and fell in love with her. And his song, Joanna, does this too. It's very simple and sweet and beautiful. And I think it's Sondheim being intentionally simple-minded, which again, earns him a hit. Every time he does that, every time Sondheim dumbs himself down, a song becomes a fucking hit like Joanna. When Sweeney Todd sings his version of Joanna at the top of the second act, that's interesting. Like, it's funny because, okay, we all know uh, he's singing this wistful song about his uh, lost daughter and he's slitting people's throats while he does it. And so that's kind of the point of that song. It's time passing. He's murdering all these people. He's slitting their throats. But have you ever actually listened to the lyrics of what he's saying? Because does anybody find it strange that Sweeney Todd, Benjamin Barker, like is not that interested in getting Joanna back? <laughs> like he's grieving the loss of her and the loss of his wife. And he wants revenge for it. But Joanna is like right there in his town. And he doesn't even particularly say that he's going to kill the judge and the beetle so that he can get her back. He he wants to kill them for revenge. Um, but yeah, that's your daughter. And in the lyrics of the song, he's grieving the loss of his daughter, right? And he's saying... Um, Although I'll think of you, I guess, until the day I die. I guess I miss you less and less as every day goes by. And then the last line of the song is, um, the last line of the song is, we learn Joanna to say goodbye. Really? So like you still want to kill the judge for killing your wife and you want to moan over the death of your wife, but you don't want to go say hi to your daughter. At least go to, the, go to her window, asshole. We know where her window is. Anthony told you what fucking street it's on. Just go there and take a look. He doesn't do that. Anyway, um, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze Sweeney Todd as a character, but uh, that's weird to me. That song is also a montage sequence, which is a bit of a Sondheim trademark. He does it a couple times in Pacific Overtures. We have not done a Pacific Overtures episode yet. I did listen to the soundtrack this past week, though, just out of... Uh, you know, I felt like revisiting it. And boy, this is some great music in that. But uh, Chris Anthem MT and Bowler Hat. Like two, both of those are like time passing. And you got little chunks uh, where you sing versions of the same thing to indicate time passing. And that's what this uh, Sweeney's version of Joanna does. And I actually did it in uh, my original musical, uh, unproduced original musical. Uh, so this is Christmas, which uh, maybe you'll hear one day, audience. Anyway, uh, Nothing's Gonna Harm You is, uh, again, it's a very, it's one of the, it, it's unlikely, not unlikely, it's not like Sondheim to write a song so general. And I know there are some lyrics in it with the, like, the two quid was in it, two or three, but the song is very general and it could be sung, sung by anybody. And I think it was. I think people throughout history have been desperate for Sondheim songs that they can sing in their cabaret show that doesn't say uh, Mr. Todd or George or, you know, whatever in it uh, that can be specific to their life and sing Nothing's Gonna Harm You and to tell the story of uh, how they met their boyfriend in college in the dorms. This is uh, one for them. Ken Jennings' voice uh, really rocks this song and the fact that he's so weird 
how it's like really sweet, but it's also kind of upsetting because this kid is all fucked up. But in time, it doesn't sound like that. All of my impressions sound the same. That sounded exactly like my impression of Henrik in the last episode. I want to talk about Pirelli's Miracle Elixir and God That's Good and the way that Sondheim uses counterpoint because I alluded to it on an earlier episode. He uh, doesn't have everyone singing the same thing at the same time. He has them singing over the, each other in counterpoint, overlapping, sort of the musical version of a Robert Altman film. The musical version of a Robert Altman film. People talking at the same time. And um, I teased that I would talk about this in the Sweeney Todd episode because he talks about it in the Sweeney Todd chapter of Finishing the Hat. And here's what he said. He says, uh, there's a chorus singing at the same time. When a chorus is singing at the same time, quote, they all sing the same lyrics. That is to say, they apparently all have the same thought at the same time. Most people and most audiences accept this convention their own uniformity being a mirror of what they're looking at. But although I happily accept a great many theater conventions, this one irritates me, unquote. And the example he uses is of uh, the title song in Oklahoma. Everyone's singing at the same time. And that's a big moment, right? Because everyone's singing at the same time and it's powerful. But he's like, uh, why would everybody at the same time say that they're honey lamb and them sit alone and talk and watch a hawk? Uh, doing lazy circles in the sky. Um, it's like that. maybe one or two of them would do that, but not all of them. And um, he uses... Also, like, did everybody have a real nice clam bake or did somebody have indigestion? Sondheim is nothing if not literal. He uh, gets mad at the song My Funny Valentine because it says, your looks are laughable, unphotographable. And he's like, uh, unless the narrator of the songs, uh, the object of his affection is... a vampire i think what he means is unphotogenic not unphotographable um so yeah i think that being anal retentive about things like that is does serve a purpose in the long run i know it pisses people off and makes them sound like an asshole but it's like uh that you know it's good I think there are times when it works. And he said, like, he uses a couple of examples of times that it works, like uh, the Asket Gavotte in My Fair Lady, because it's everybody um, sort of projecting the same thing at the same time. Wasn't that uh, the feeling absolutely gripping? And uh, then he uses the, the Jet song as an example. It's like they're all singing because they're trying to have a unifying message. It works if somebody has a party line, which is why, you know, Sondheim doesn't talk about this, but I think this works really well in the musical Parade. Like Parade does this really well because Parade is a musical about mob mentality. So when they all sing the old Red Hills of Home, it makes sense because it's like anthemic and it's also scary. And I like musicals that are scary, like Sweeney Todd. Um, so here in these two songs, Pirelli's Miracle Elixir and God, that's good. Sondheim, what he's doing, he's creating a crowd effect by having people sing different things at the same time. And then they culminate in some unifying cry. Like, God, that's good. They all like the pies. Or give us back the money. They all feel ripped off by Pirelli and Toby. All right, I tried to put this off. Uh, I can put it off no longer. We need to talk about the Tim Burton film from 2008 of Sweeney Todd. Um, and like I said, I don't want to be a contrarian, bearded asshole in a flannel shirt and just say negative shit. So I want to start with what's good about it. Okay. Um, I think it's a good screenplay. I think that the cuts make sense. Um, whoever wrote that screenplay 
did a great job. Let me give him credit. Or her. Let me give her him or her credit. Hold on. All right, folks. Just checked. It was written by somebody called John Logan. Good job, John Logan. That screenplay is very tight, and it um, it's a good translation. It keeps what should be in a movie and subtracts what should not be in a movie, and it uh, paraphrases things that should be paraphrased. Obviously, it breaks my heart that The Ballad of Sweeney Todd is not in there, but it would not make sense to have it in there because you don't need a Greek chorus type thing in a movie. That's obvious. We talked a lot about movie musicals. I talked a lot about <laughs> movie musicals last week. And um, I was talking about the ones that I liked, uh, I, like Chicago and Fiddler on the Roof. Um, one that I, I, I left out, uh, and I don't actually like it, <laughs> but um, it's just worth mentioning, is uh, the movie of In the Heights a couple years ago. I had a weird experience with that where um, I watched the first 15 minutes of it and I was so on board. I was like, this is, fu this is fucking awesome. Thank God, another good movie musical. And I even went on Facebook to say as much, like an idiot. Um, I wrote a Facebook post about how much I liked In the Heights and then I kept watching it and I lost faith in it. I found it stupid. So uh, there's that. Um, so, that the, the tragedy of Sweeney Todd as a movie is that it does everything you're supposed to do to make a good movie musical, but it does it so poorly, so badly, you know, that uh, you can't call it good, frankly. But we're talking about the good stuff. So uh, uh, the movement through town, I like that. Like how the camera sort of speeds through London. Um Especially right before Worst Pies in London, where we go from the docks there. Uh, that, the, that works really nicely with the music. Uh, I think that it works having Toby played by an actual child with dead eyes. I didn't like that children played Jack in Little Red Riding Hood in the Into the Woods movie. But in this one, like it, 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 was, it, it made sense. And it was spooky. That it was like, oh, look at this, this actual little boy. Not a uh, you know, young man in his early 20s that can convincingly play a teenager. Sasha Baron Cohen is great in it. Does a great job. Timothy Spall, perfectly cast as the Beatle and really does, uh, 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 brings justice to the role of the Beatle in a way that none of the Broadway performers maybe did. Uh, I like the flashback sequences. They add a lot to it. The dream sequences, especially uh, during By the Sea when we see uh, them by the sea, and Sweeney is in like a bathing suit, but he still looks all depressed. I think that I thought that was that was that moment stood out to me, and that's like what I remember from that movie. But uh, so yeah, I, I I will say like why if you're gonna do flashbacks, like why do we never see Sweeney on the prison island pitching and tossing on the raft in I'm assuming again Australia, right? The the prison island. <clears throat> Don't know much about history, folks. Um, Sondheim loves this film. He loved the fact that Burton wanted to do it. He loved it when it came out. He thinks it's the best adaptation of his work on film. Sondheim is wrong. Sondheim is wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, I stand by that. And I, uh, and I saw it in the theaters when it came out. I was excited, but I was prepared to be disappointed. <laughs> and I was indeed disappointed. The people that I was with were not musical theater heads and they loved it or they liked it, I guess. 
this uh, the movie is not really uh, st- stood uh, the test of time through history. Like it's not uh, a movie that people are still talking about on any level, right? Well, kind of a shrug, right? I think. Um, but they said, "Oh, you're just too married to the original that you can't get into this." And I thought, okay, maybe that's true. I don't think that anymore. I saw it again last night. I tried to see it again last night, guys. I, I much like my father towards the end of his uh, film criticism career, I could not finish it. I bailed. Uh, I got sleepy and I wanted to put on ASMR videos. Uh, but I, 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 I watched it with uh, my girlfriend, Shailene, and we, we, we bailed. Uh, where did we bail? Probably around, oh, right after the death of Pirelli, Pirelli's murder. Now, the worst thing about the film, the one element where if the element that dooms the film, in my mind, is the performance of Helena Bonham Carter. I think her performance is epically wrongheaded. Here's what Angela Lansbury said about the character. Quote, it became clear to me that the part was a key role and it also represented the only relief in the whole piece. It had the kind of comedic moments which appealed to me because I knew I understood the background of the piece really well. So that is missing from Helena Bonham Carter's performance altogether. Helena Bonham Carter, and I'm sure she was directed this way, and I like Helena Bonham Carter as an actress in a lot of the things she's done. I do think that she and Johnny Depp did one to 12 too many movies with Tim Burton. That whole trio just was, you know, really wearing thin at a certain point. The fact that Mrs. Lovett and Mr. Todd, Mr. Sweeney Todd, are on the same level, like the same tonal level in this, just is so stupid. And the fact that everything is so deadpan and whispered, it's like somebody told, it doesn't seem like it was made by an iconic filmmaker like a Tim Burton. It's like somebody said, oh, this is the movie, so you have to whisper. I mean, Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter are seasoned movie stars. It's so weird and so energyless, the way that they whisper and they sleepwalk through these scenes. It's boring. It's depressing. Johnny Depp, Sweeney Todd, it just has no gravitas. Uh... He's doing it in a Cockney accent, and I, uh, why? Not necessary. I guess to make it more real. It is weird that there is no Cockney accent on Sweeney, and there is one on Mrs. Lovett in the play. It doesn't bother me. Um, Sweeney Todd should not be handsome, either. Uh, I know, I know that, uh, Johnny Depp has acquired a little, he's accumulated some grime, on him and he's not as handsome as he was back in the old days <laughs> but um he's a little too handsome to play Sweeney Todd even with makeup and a little white stripe in his hair to indicate that he's been traumatized Sondheim's whole thing his whole career has been that he would rather cast actors than singers or somebody you know he'd rather have an actor who can kind of sing than a singer who can kind of act that doesn't work on this, though, man. Like, that doesn't work on Sweeney Todd. You gotta sing this well, because it's the music is beautiful. And you fuck it up with this fucking half-assed singing. 
also, you know, we're we're in the 21st century at this point. There are people who can do both. It's not impossible. Tim, Tim Burton makes great children's movies. And I loved his movies as a child. I was the exact right age when Nightmare Before Christmas came out. And then I was real into Beetlejuice. I think Beetlejuice is still my favorite Tim Burton film. I mean, this is... He doesn't know how to make movies for grown-ups. This is a children's film that's rated R. This is for nobody. Fucking sucks. Alan Rickman, you know, he's a great actor. And rest in peace, Alan Rickman. But he, he makes Judge Turpin into a more conventional villain that's just like, I am the bad guy. And not like a disturbingly sick old fuck like Edmund Lindek does, where it's just like, this is an old man with too much power that is too horny, that is just like no moral scruples. Anyway, I need to end this episode. This is longer than any episode I've done so far. I apologize. Um, let me get to some side notes here. Um, apparently when they did the... There, there were all kinds of uh, play goes wrong, the play that goes wrong issues with the original performance of this. Um, the, the barber caravan, they made it with wood that they bought from a junkyard. And so there was wood lice crawling all over the stage and on the actors on opening night. Uh, some idiot thought that Mrs. Lovett's apron didn't look dirty enough backstage. And so they took it downstairs and smeared it with actual spaghetti instead of, uh, you know, uh, uh, chemicals or paint or something. And so poor Angela Lansbury had to smell rotten fucking Romano cheese and meat. That's interesting, funny. Um, uh, during previews, a bridge fell on the stage. Uh, and ironically, it was during Nothing's Gonna Harm You and it almost killed them. So yeah, things went wrong. Um, I will venture to say that uh, Sweeney Todd has the best poster art for any musical I've ever seen. And I want to give credit where credit is due. Frank Verlitzo. Verlitzo. Good job, Frank. Well done, Frank. He did a few Sondheim ones after this, too. I think he did Sunday in the Park with George and a few others. Nice job on the poster art. Um, and, you know, finally, I think that one thing that I discovered this week... Revisiting Sweeney Todd, one of my old favorites. I've had a lot of uh, dream roles, and musical theater people like to talk about dream roles all the time and uh, fill out questionnaires about them, and I'm no different than that. I like to pretend that I'm so much better than people that do musicals, but I'm not. I'm, uh, I'm also an annoying fuck, and so I have my dream roles. <laughs> and... Um, over time, they've changed. When I was in high school, the sky was the limit. I just, uh, I figured uh, when you, oh, I wonder what show our school's going to do next year and what part I'm going to play in it. You can play any part when you're in high school because you're all teenagers. So who cares? Everyone's got to play something. And age and demographics don't matter as much. As I'm uh, staring down the barrel of 40, I see some of my, some of my previous options disappear. Like I said, uh, if I want to play comp I want to play Robert and Company, I may be a little too old for it, and it may be reserved for women going forward. And congratulations to women! Hooray progress! That's great. I think what I've discovered this week is that Sweeney Todd is my new dream role. I think I got to find a way to play Sweeney Todd. 
I had it off the table for many years because I was too young and the notes were low. But I think I got the notes now and I think I'm old enough. I at least look as old as Josh Groban, am I right? This is very self-serving. What I'm trying to say is, will somebody please cast me in the role of Sweeney Todd? I'll do it. Let's do it here in Los Angeles. And uh, you won't be sorry. And who may it be said is your intended, sir? I'll sound better than that. That was pretty bad. Anyway, this concludes our insane episode about Sweeney Todd. Thank you for bearing with me on this one. I had a lot to say. I don't know what it's going to be down to after I edit out uh, my horrific coughing fits. Hopefully not too much more than 90 minutes. Final thoughts. Sweeney Todd is a masterpiece. It's easy to say that it's the best Sondheim musical. I find it hard to say that it's the best because it's so different and it really stands alone. Next week, we're going to talk about a show that is my favorite Sondheim musical for somewhat personal reasons, but also just because from where I'm sitting, it has the most to offer. And that musical is Merrily We Roll Along. And I think this is the first episode in kind of a run of hits, right? Like, I don't think we're going to be skipping anything for a while. I mean, Sondheim was on a roll from 1979 up to 1991. And we're going to talk about all of them. Thank you for listening to Sondheim on Adderall. And um, I'm going to Google a sign-off message, if you'll give me just a moment. Sondheim quote that says, good Bye. I maybe God. I'm at some point. I'm gonna run run out of these. I feel like I'm already running low here. Okay, what's going on here? God damn it. Okay, now I understand. And it's time to stop talking and doing this podcast because it's 7.04 p.m. And this went way longer than I'd hoped it might go. And you're probably exhausted if you're still listening to it. <sighs> Listen, I'm not an improv comedian. And I uh, never said that these were uh, any good, these sign-offs. I'm going to cut my losses. I'm not going to... I'm not going to... Send good money after bad here. I'm going to end this episode unceremoniously. It's over. This has been the Sweeney Todd episode of Sondheim on Adderall. Swing your razors wide, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 